Hey listeners, welcome to 10x Growth Podcast. This is your host Preeti Padmanabhan, technology executive, investor and board member. Today, we will feature the book 2030: How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything by Mauro Gillen. Our guest is Molly McCabe, who is the CEO and founder of Hayden Tanner, an investor advisory firm accelerating impact investment and sustainability in the built environment. Molly is a veteran of commercial real estate finance, capital markets and sustainable development. Molly, welcome to 10x Growth Strategies podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Preeti. I'm delighted to be here with you. Wonderful. Let's get things started. Tell us about your career journey and key turning points along the way. Well, as you mentioned, I am a real estate investment advisor. I actually live in Montana, which may be one of those key turning points along the way, having been a long-time uh, finance person in real estate and in banking in the San Francisco Bay Area. About 20 years ago, I decided to change my path and I moved to Montana to start a real estate investment firm. So my background is in real estate investing. I tend to work on commercial real estate strictly. I'm also a real estate developer and really believe that it's important to think about community as we do any sorts of investing and recognizing that as we take capital our capital has an impact and being really thoughtful about what kind of an impact we want to make that drives a lot of the decisions that I make personally and a lot of the decisions that I recommend for my clients that's one of the reasons that I picked this book to talk about because I thought it was so interesting some of the trends that were coming up that he talks about in the book Excellent. I I got to read the book after you recommended it to me and I was fascinated. In fact, I also had a chance to listen to the author in a speaking session and he really has a very sharp and brilliant way of looking at things. Uh so let's get straight into this book. Uh one of the first chapters and topics that Mauro Gillen talks about is about Africa. and he says africa is a critical continent of the future what are some areas of innovation that is expected from africa well i think i think it's a really interesting point and let me let me set the stage perhaps on that um and maybe sort of walk through a couple of the other trends because what i see with africa is how these things are going to collide so one of the things he talks about are climate change and the ensuing sort of climate driven which is really economic and politically driven migration out of places which are potentially no longer going to be comfortably habitable in the long term future as well as places that will be challenging to grow food he also talks about the shift and this does speak directly to um africa and sub saharan africa and that's the shift in uh population and demographics and particularly population growth. He talks a lot about how the, a lot of the shift has to do with women and women staying in school, which I think is particularly interesting and also drives to what's happening in Africa. He talks about the fact that there will be a wealth transfer from older from the older white male population in particular to the to their spouses and to the younger generation and how that might change and then he talks a lot about how the urban population is growing rapidly which will drive how we live in community what our infrastructure looks like and sort of what our comfort is with people who might come from different places so i thought all of those were particularly interesting 
But let's circle back to Africa because I thought this was uh, particularly fascinating. In Africa, the current population is projected to grow from its current 1.3 billion people to 2 billion by 2038 and to 3 billion by 2061. That is an extraordinary growth as compared to any place else on the planet. And a lot of that demographic shift has to do with the declining fertility rates in the Western world, in the US, as well as in Western Europe and in Japan, interestingly enough. I think that as we start to look at what does that mean, that means that we as a global community will start to see the rise of Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa in particular as a driving force in goods and services. And so one of the key things he talks about is that the next industrial revolution will actually be in sub-Saharan Africa, which seems a little counterintuitive because he talks a lot about agriculture and that there are about 500 million acres of fertile but underdeveloped land of agriculture land in Africa. And just to give some perspective, that's the same size as the country of Mexico, so that 500 million acres. And so one of the things he talks about is different new types of agricultural development and new types of technologies happening there that will increase um, food production and increase the economic possibilities for Africa. So I think that's a really interesting topic to watch and interesting to see where technology can come into play as it relates to different types of farming and agriculture. Wow, those are phenomenal numbers in terms of the population increase that you talked about. And thanks for also summarizing different angles that the author has talked about women as well as the rise of different levels of population. Coming back to Africa, you talked about how certain trends are leading to the growth of Africa and why that becomes an important area for us to look at for future growth and innovation. So that is very interesting because. Traditionally, and in the last many centuries, we have focused more on Asia, Europe, and Americas. Nobody has looked at Africa as the driver of innovation, and that will be an interesting shift in dynamics. So so really cool. Let's take a shift to America. One of the biggest trends that we see is immigration. The several immigrants who have come into America over the last two, three, four hundred years have been instrumental to driving innovation in the U.S. So tell us why is immigration important to America? How have the immigrants impacted the society? It's such a great question. And I think it, it's so important, particularly looking at the United States demographics and our declining fertility rates. If you sort of step back and you look at where things have been, immigrants have started 44 of the last 87 tech unicorns. It's pretty phenomenal. So you start to think about what they bring to not merely just economics, but creativity and innovation. 40% of the Nobel laureates from the United States are also immigrants. And what that tells you is that immigrants by nature are more risk-taking and drive innovation. I mean, how difficult is it to make a decision to leave your country, the place that you were born, the culture that you're familiar with, and uproot everything and come to a place that you're not familiar with? And I think it's pretty striking to see the positive impacts that that immigrants 
have brought to the United States. And I think it's going to be even more striking and more important as we look at the Western world's declining fertility rates. And that has been shown over and over again that we're going to see a, a reduced number of births. And that's that trend has been continuing over the coming years. It's an interesting conversation because while we have uh, a component of the United States population and elsewhere who have really tried to limit immigration, I think that when you start to look at all the innovations brought and the creativity and the economic benefits and cultural positive attributes, what you will see is that our communities will start to actually decline if we do not allow more immigration. So I do think that with the change in demographics, we will see an increase in immigration. I think that's a positive factor. I think that's an economic decision that we should be considering. But I think more importantly, we're going to be seeing a shift because of, you know, we talked a little bit about climate migration. And one of the things that we see is, as the climate has been changing is that people are moving. And so it's important to recognize that that will also drive immigration in a way that perhaps we hadn't thought of before. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad we have immigration in the U.S. because that's how I came here. So <laughs> I certainly am thankful for that. And like you said, right, immigrants have this hustle, this drive, because they are trying to come to this new place that is completely foreign to them, leaving behind their home countries, and they have to prove their worth in that new environment. So they do take more risks, and they certainly have, they have been driving innovation. I attended this webinar recently about the county I live in, uh, which is Santa Clara County. And apparently 50% of the population is people who are not born in the US, right? So that is like a huge, huge uptick over the last 30, 40, 50 years, according to what uh, the statistics that were shared. Well, I think it's, you know, it said that um, by 2030, less than half of the population in the United States will be non-Hispanic whites. So the United States will be a country of minorities, which in fact is a misnomer in and of itself, right? Because then you become the majority. So I think it's really interesting. And if we look again, going back to this conversation earlier about Africa, and you see the population growth in Africa and in India. When you think about it from the U.S. perspective, if we want to continue to become a strong economic driver for the world's population, we need to have immigrants here who can create stronger linkages with those different countries. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I better get started on my Spanish. so that I can... <laughs> You and me both. <laughs> yes. All right. So let us take a look at a different demographic that the author talks about, which is the senior citizens. The author says by 2030, there'll be 1.4 billion people over the age of 60. What are some key drivers for seniors and what is the impact on business? So the author calls this gray is the new black, which I thought was funny. So I think it's really important as we start to see this 1.4 billion people over the age of 60, it's an important to understand how seniors spend their money. And according to AARP and those of us who are sort of heading towards that seniorhood, because we're all aging regardless, most seniors are optimistic about their overall quality of life, expecting it to improve or kind of remain the same. And so what you're going to see are things like healthcare, home care and assisted living are going to thrive. Leisure and entertainment are also going to thrive because, you know, people want to go out and do things after they retire. But then there were some more interesting things that he talks about in the book, which are things that are focused on quality of life, things like shoes that are both stylish, but also 
easy to use, like with things that will deal with joint pain and those kinds of things that happen when we age and get arthritis and so forth. He talks about age-friendly fitness centers. Right now, we have a lot of fitness centers that are centered around the demographics of downtown, which could be kind of interesting in this age of COVID. But now what we'll start to see is a growth of fitness centers that are age-friendly in places where seniors are living. Maybe that's a good thing for parts of Florida and Arizona where you know people tend to move. A couple of the other technology things that I thought were pretty, pretty interesting that he talks about. He talks about virtual reality applications, which will help seniors overcome senses of isolation or an exoskeleton that will help them pick up things or walk. So I think that was particularly interesting. Now, on the other side, we're going to see consumption patterns change. So seniors tend to be downsizing. So you're not going to see on the finance side as many new mortgages, except for maybe for second homes. But you're going to start to see that sort of shift and change. That being said, I think we're also going to start to see, as I mentioned earlier, this big wealth transfer. And I think that is a very fascinating topic just because what you see is that as seniors age and start to transfer their wealth to this next generation, beyond the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, the millennials, they have a different perspective on how they spend their money. And they seem to be much more focused on things that um, perhaps are community driven. They look to different types of investments. They're investing in things around climate. They're investing things on the environment, in conservation. So I think it's going to be a very interesting demographics or different shift in the demographics that will drive consumption patterns, which will drive investment opportunities, which would drive you know new products. As I said, these exoskeletons and this virtual reality. Again, going back to community, I think we're going to see multi-generational living come back to being an important way for uh, families to be able to share the wealth in a different way than we saw in times past. That's excellent. That's uh, good to hear that with the change in the population and the increase in number of senior citizens, if the businesses are going to adapt and change like you talked about, right, fitness centers that are more age-focused and even ability to have technology work better for senior citizens who are now going to live longer and uh, have more access to all of these services. So that sounds like a really much better place for senior citizens, as well as I would see nowadays it even that the senior age is shifting. Just because somebody is 65 doesn't mean they stop working. Many people who are 65 are still active and they want to be part of the community. So it's certainly a great uh, shift in the right direction to be more uh, mindful of their needs. 80 is the new 60? 80 is the new 60. I love it. Gray is the new black. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about the younger generation, you know, the Gen Gen Yers, Gen Zers. And uh, it's very interesting, this Gen Z, was actually born into technology. They were born in the late 90s and 2000s, and they were driven by this whole concept of global citizenship and progressive views in on marriage and climate change. Like you said, they are more community focused. At the same time, I think there are some challenges for the up and coming generation. I'd love to hear what are some challenges and opportunities for these Gen Z generation. Yeah, great, great points. I mean, a point that you make that they were the first generation to be completely born into technology. I know my son doesn't actually understand that there was ever a phone that was attached to a wall. He doesn't understand that. And he's pretty sure that television comes on his phone. 
as a general rule. He doesn't even use his laptop. He uses his phone to do everything. So I think that's pretty interesting. And they are, they're, they're sort of looking at this as almost limitless. This technology is limitless. And so there's so many possibilities there, which is phenomenal. They also, as you point out, really seem to feel that global values dominate over local values. So their, their perspectives on um, their progressive views on marriage and climate change and in sort of global citizenship. And again, this speaks to this demographics and immigration. All that said, particularly in the United States, but, but elsewhere, what we're seeing is this, there's a reduction in fertility. So with the exception of Africa, we're seeing a reduction in fertility. So we're not having as many babies as we were, and that number has been declining over time. So now you have a smaller generation, just in total numbers, who will have will need to support a larger aging demographic. And these are young people who in many cases are coming out of college with extraordinary student debt, a huge burden on them as they come out. And I think it will certainly impact their perspective or even opportunity on home ownership, for example. So what does that mean to say a sharing economy? Does that mean we're doing different types of housing situations? Again, leading to for perhaps as multi-generational housing situation. And I think they probably are gonna be asked to carry on a much higher burden, a higher tax burden to carry the older generation who, whether it was through pensions or social security or other sort of social support mechanisms that these younger people will have to take that on that burden in order to create a lifestyle so at least the elder generation can stay healthy. So I think we're going to see sort of this shift over time of how we live in community. I think that in and of itself will be a very different way of living. And I also think because as we've talked about earlier, sort of these the benefits of all this technology is that we're going to be healthier. And if gray is the new black today, you can imagine for these young people who are taking much better care of themselves, who are active, they're going to push that gray is the new black even higher. So instead of 80 being the new 60, maybe it's 90 is the new 60, right? By the time they get there. But I do think it's going to be an interesting shift. I think it's, uh, we're going to see, again, a shift in just the type of young people who are here, more immigration, more immigrants. So we will have a country, at least in the United States, that I think will be more culturally diverse, linguistically diverse, ethnically diverse. I, I mean, I think it's going to be a very interesting time. And I do hope that because of their focus on, on sort of global citizenship, we'll also see a commitment to creating a better planet. And hopefully those of us who are older can really support them um, so that we hand them something that they they can run with and we don't completely limit their resources and their options today so that they're stuck with what we have sown. Yeah, I think that those are some great insights on some of the ways the younger generation is going to have uh, challenges with higher taxation and as well as the need to depend on the older generation for their monetary needs and community living. Uh, Interestingly, this almost takes me back to a few years ago when joint family systems were in place, especially in communities like India and other parts of Asia, where uh, it used to be community living and and then adults and seniors would then help the younger generations to come and and then the younger ones in turn would help the adults as they're aging. So it'll be interesting to see that dynamic and how that would play out uh, in, uh, in the US and other parts of the world. 
Well, hopefully with the immigration, we will be more prepared to do that because those values and those family orientation will come over and we'll have some experts coming to help us learn how to do that. Yes, absolutely. Well, there was one interesting chapter in the book which talks about getting ready for the Sings and Wongs, <laughs> talking about India and China and the focus on middle class. And the fact is that the consumer confidence index is based on middle class and the way businesses are operating is most of their customers are from middle class who impact the economy in U.S., and in the larger context, the global context. Tell us your thoughts on the impact of middle class in U.S. as well as in India and China. What were some thoughts you gathered from the book? So as you point out right now today, the United States and Europe house the majority of the world's middle class. So let me give you some numbers because this to me was particularly fascinating. So it says the number of people currently in the middle class in the United States numbers 223 million. By 2030, that is going to shift dramatically. And by 2030, we will see that China and India and the rest of Asia will be home to more than half of global consumer purchasing power. So by 2030, the number of people entering the middle class in the emerging markets we bet will be 1 billion people. And by 2030, the United States, as I said today, is at 223 million. By 2030, it will be 209 million. So we're going to see a fairly dramatic shift in where the, the concentration of power is in the middle class. And I think that the, the trends show that the Chinese middle class market will be the largest, but only for a decade or two. So that's going to shift as well. And we're going to see that India is the next rising populace of middle class because of their number of young people and their increasingly well-educated population. And so that will constitute the most attractive emerging market for the middle class by 2030. So that's a pretty significant shift in terms of where that global power sits as it relates to consumer confidence and the middle class. So I think it'll be a very interesting shift to these sort of emerging markets. Well, maybe we will all move to India at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I like India. India was very lovely to visit when I was there. I might be a little too old by then. In a few decades, that might be a little too long for me to wait, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> we are now global citizens, as we have been talking about. And I do think that visiting and, and traveling has been a very big passion of mine. So it will be exciting to see these shifts play out. The last topic I want to talk about women. The author says women are the new millionaires and leaders of tomorrow. Women receive more degrees than men. 40% of women earn more than men in their houses. So what are some key insights on women that are shared in the book that resonated with you? I came away from the, the beginning of the chapter feeling really optimistic. And then I came away by the end of that chapter feeling like it's kind of a mixed bag. And particularly post-COVID, the author wrote this book prior to COVID. It came out and there was a postscript on COVID at the very end. So let me, let me give you some stats again. In the year 2000, so 20 years ago, 21 years ago, the percentage of the world's wealth owned by women was only 15%. Today, women are accumulating wealth at a much faster rate than men. To your point, women are receiving more college degrees than men are. And so about 55% of all the wealth by 2030 will be held by women. 
So that's a pretty significant shift. Women also tend to outlive men. That means just from a practical perspective, we're going to have a wealth redistribution from men to their spouses which are typically women. And women are more willing to spend money on different things than men are willing to spend on. So women are willing to spend money on education for themselves, as well as their children and their grandchildren. They're also willing to spend money on healthcare, not only for themselves and their children, but also for their parents. So we'll see again, going back to that earlier conversation about gray is the new black, women are more willing to spend money on maybe those exoskeletons and those virtual reality goggles for their their parents, for example. And what you're seeing, which I think is fascinating in practice, are women philanthropists. So you look at uh, Mackenzie Scott, formerly Bezos, and Melinda Gates, and how they're putting their money out there today, which is different in many ways than their male counterparts. So I think that's all of the most fabulous, wonderful things as women shift. Women are also different in terms of the way they view leadership. They tend to be more collaborative. They tend to look more at different factors, more weaving together different features of things. So and I think that's that's very different I, in terms of how women move through the leadership world. Now, that being said, the Gates Foundation, there was a recent study that showed that about 40% of the women are living in countries that are failing in terms of gender equality. And so that's pretty disturbing. What we're also seeing is that there's a difference in terms of women's well-being depending on their level of education. And what you see is that women who lack education are more likely to drop out of school. Those women are also more likely to become teen moms. And it's a vicious cycle, of course, because if the reason for dropping out of school is because of a teen pregnancy, then that means they're less likely to get a better job you know, over the long term. More than 60%, at least, of young unmarried women who have children are living in poverty. And poverty is a is a risk factor for teen pregnancy. And so today, sort of post-COVID, one of the things that concerns me as I look at this is during COVID, the segment that did not go back to work were women. The segment that took on more child rearing during COVID were women. One of the things he doesn't talk about in the book, that despite all these women going to school, getting degrees in greater numbers, I think they have also been disproportionately impacted by COVID. You see what's happening in places like Afghanistan. And you see what's happening with the Taliban and how women's rights there are being dramatically curtailed. That's concerning about women. In the United States, women are also facing challenges as it relates to their right to choose. So again, I think that it's there's it's a good news, bad news story in the in the situation with women because you know women will rise. We will see more women in the managerial ranks, but it will still be in the minority. The single most important thing for women today is education and keeping them in school. That impacts poverty. It impacts pregnancy, it gives them more positive ability to move up in their economic well-being and their leadership as well. Kind of a mixed bag on the women's side, positive and negative, I guess. Yes, thank you for being candid in that conversation. You know, it's good to see what is happening as it is. Uh, so we can then take that as lessons as we go forward, uh, certainly get more women educated, make sure they finish their degrees, and then at the same time, support more women leaders. So great, great thoughts there. This has been a great conversation, Molly. What are some final tips or tricks that you have to survive 2030? <laughs> well, I'll take most of them from the book. 
the bottom line is, even though we're in 2021, almost in 2022, and he wrote the book in 2020, and we're only eight years away, it's not too late to prepare, at least in our mindset and, and definitely in practice. First off, recognize things will definitely change because isn't that always the case? The only thing you can count on is that something will change. Secondly, I think it's important to recognize that simply falling back on sort of our old norms and ways of doing business are not going to cut it. We have to start to question and challenge old ways of thinking. Our traditional mindset is simply too linear, too vertical to just be able to help us where things are happening. So a couple of his ideas that I think are important is lose sight of the shore. And that means you cannot swim to new horizons if you're keeping yourself tethered to the old one. We just need to let it go. And it is scary. I know that it's scary. But, you know, how can you look at these changing demographics, population growth in Africa rise dramatically? We look at the changes in immigration. We look at things like technology and automation and all of those things. If you don't dive out and just let go and let lose sight of what you know and test things out, we will never survive this. That being said, we recognize that it's kind of uncertain. And I think all of this uncertainty, just approach it with optimism. Because you, you always feel more anxious when you feel like you've lost control over your environment. So anxiety about falling always induces more anxiety. So just be optimistic and recognize that if, if you look forward, you'll see every predicament, every interaction as an opportunity. Things will change. Get on top of that surfboard and just follow it in because we will survive. We will be successful. Don't be afraid of the future. That's a great way to finish the podcast, Molly. Really, really appreciate you joining us here today. Listeners, 2030, check out the book. And thank you for listening. Thanks so much, Preeti. 